Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. If you're using the, the Bible in the back of the pew, you'll find our passage on page 832. Page 832, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep. And take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Spirit's help. Father in heaven, as we approach a, a text that is Difficult to read, difficult to understand. I pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, as we see this side of our Savior, Jesus, help us to understand who he is and what he's about to endure. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. I remember several years ago, I guess I was in my 20s, I went on a mission trip with a pastor, uh, my pastor, um, who I highly esteemed, and um, spending two weeks with someone um, will decrease your esteem with someone. I realized during that trip that he was not the, the solemn and serious man that he was in the pulpit, and that, that really, that shook me up. That was a... Um, a crisis of faith for me as, as, a, as a younger believer. And it actually took me several weeks after that to, to kind of do a, a mental reset on how I thought of, of my pastor at that time. But that, that can happen. I know many of you are smiling. You've, you've experienced that before. You think you know somebody. Maybe it's a coworker, And then you spend an extended amount of time with him and you realize you don't know them quite the way that you thought. You see them under pressure, and you realize they're not the person that you thought they were. And Jesus, here in Gethsemane, can be like that for some of us. What we see happen here can, can really shake up how we think about Jesus. 
And that's especially true if you've only been reading Matthew's Gospel. So if you haven't read John's Gospel, for instance, if you've just been studying Matthew, Matthew, as we've read it, you see that, that Matthew's portrayed Jesus as, as actually kind of stoic. He has, certainly he's been moved a number of times. You, you've seen him feel. He has shown compassion. He's shown mercy. He's shown himself to be inviting and, and, and welcoming. But his compassion, as, we, as we've read about it, it's always been, it's always been filtered. It's not, it's, it's not raw. It's, it's this, this, this compassion filtered by wisdom. I would say you could describe Jesus' demeanor in Matthew as, as regal. After all, Matthew's telling us the story of how Jesus became king. So it makes sense that he would, he would tell us about a regal, kingly Jesus. But what happens in Gethsemane is a break from that. In Gethsemane, this is, this is raw. It is it's unfiltered. Jesus is at his weakest here, at his neediest, his lowliest, his loneliest. And if our theology, our understanding about who Jesus is doesn't have space for this scene, this moment in his life, then we would say that's an incomplete theology. This is Jesus. As, we, as we've studied Matthew, we, we've certainly seen that Jesus is God, that he is divine. He has power over the wind and waves. He forgives sin. He sees into men's souls. He reads their minds and their thoughts. He has power over the demons. The glory of God is displayed in him. We've seen that. And there are a handful of places as well where we've seen that he is truly and fully man. He's human. He's born of a woman. He's made of flesh and bone. He gets hungry. He eats. He drinks. But Gethsemane, this, what happens here in Gethsemane has historically throughout the, the, the ages of the church has always been thought of as the single most important bit of evidence that we have that Jesus is truly a man. Whatever, whatever your theology of Jesus is, what we call your Christology, it must pass the Gethsemane test. So rather than, than going through this passage verse by verse, as we have grown accustomed to doing, um, we're going to look at this passage instead from three different angles. All right. So this morning we're going to look from, from one perspective as, at Jesus as human. We're going to look at Jesus as humanity. And another angle that we're going to take, we're, we're going to look at Jesus' prayers. And finally, we're going to look at Jesus' faith. And as, as you can probably tell from the way I've introduced this, most of the time that we're going to spend here is on Jesus' humanity. I want us to, to really see this in the text, uh, because this is historically how the church has, has read this text. So we're going to begin in verse 36, as we look at the humanity of Jesus. Look at verse 36 with me. Then Jesus went with them, and the them here is the disciples, if you remember from last week. He went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now, I want to pause there for a moment. If you read the gospel according to John, if you read John's account, the apostle John does not tell us the name of this place. John says this is a garden, and it is on the other side of the brook of Kidron. And there's a reason that the way that for the reason, there's a reason why John says things that way. 
John wants us to see that this place that Jesus is at is, is the same place that David was when he left Jerusalem, when Absalom was seeking David's life to kill him. Samuel says that, that David crossed over the brook of Kidron. And so John says Jesus crossed over the brook of Kidron to show us that, that Jesus is David. He is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Messiah promise. But he also, John also wants us to see that this is a garden, that there's a temptation that takes place in a garden to show us that Jesus is the new Adam. So that's John's account. Luke doesn't name this place either. He just says it's a place on the Mount of Olives, and it was the place that Jesus often went to for solitude and for prayer with his disciples. Mark and Matthew, though, do name this place. They tell us that the name of this place is, is an estate on the Mount of Olives, and it is called Gethsemane. And the reason I bring that all up, all up is because Gethsemane means oil press or olive press. This is the place by the Mount of Olives where, where the olives that were grown there would have been put under severe pressure. And the, and the oil would be extracted. This is where we see what's inside the olive. This is also where we see what is inside of Jesus. He will be pressed. And as the psalmist said in our, in our passage earlier, his soul will be poured out. So it's not by accident that Matthew tells us the name of this place. So they've entered into this estate, and, and, and think of, of, of a walled-off area. It's a, it's a section of the Mount of Olives. They've entered into this area in verse 36 and 37. Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That would be James and John. And he began, as he's taking them with him, to be, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, Matthew tells us. So picture this, if you can picture it in your mind's eye. Jesus tells eight of them, sit down here somewhere at the beginning or the entrance of this place. Judas isn't there with them anymore. Apparently he has slipped away at some point in the night. Matthew doesn't say when. Eight of the disciples are instructed to stay in one place and pray, and then Jesus takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, and they go further up, further in. Now, according to, to, to Matthew's telling, I want you to see something else here. These three disciples, Peter, James, and John, have only once before been invited by Jesus to be alone with him. Certainly, there were other times. Matthew doesn't tell us about those. He gives us one other time. Back in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to meet with God, and Jesus was transfigured before them. In that scene, the other disciples were left at the bottom of the mountain, and Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus for this encounter, and on that mountain, the glory of Jesus was revealed to Peter, James, and John. They saw the divinity of Jesus, the divinity of Christ. They find out there that Jesus is truly and fully God. And what happens to them? They fall on their faces. Three men on their face before God. So it makes sense then, doesn't it, that these same three disciples are chosen by Jesus 
to see him truly revealed as human as well. And that's what we see here in our passage. As soon as he takes these three men with him, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then they walk a little farther. And that, that sorrowful, troubled spirit gets, gets worse and worse. Jesus says to them, look at verse 38. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. What does that mean? My soul is very, very sorrowful. We've seen this previously in the, in the Bible. This is the same language that the psalmist uses in Psalm 42. When the psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul? That's, that's the same word, cast down, sorrowful. He's using the same thing. This is a deep, deep, soul-crushing sadness. Think of an, an agonizing, crippling sorrow. It's that, all of you have experienced this, that, that lump in your throat, you get dizzy, feel like you're going you're gonna to throw up, that sorrow. And as we see in Jesus, it, it completely disables him. He tells his disciples, remain here and watch with me. And going just a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Look at Matthew's language. Fell on his face to pray. There's a rawness to this, isn't there? Certainly there's, there's a, a reverence in his falling on his face to pray, but I also think that Matthew is showing us a, a helplessness in Jesus. He cannot go any farther. Falls on his face. Jesus' soul literally feels like it's being torn in two. He's spiritually and emotionally just torn. So much so that his body is, is, is weakened. And all he can do is fall down and ask the Lord for help. The contrast that I want you to see there between here and, and that mount of, of transfiguration. Right? On that mountain, the disciples fall on their faces to worship Jesus. And that was good of them to do. It was right for them to do. He's not an idol. He is God. He's worthy of worship. But this time, it's Jesus on his face. And he's helplessly submitting himself to God. The contrast that Matthew is showing us here is, He's human here. Such a stark difference, isn't there, between the two scenes. But it's not just, it's not just a literary technique that Matthew's using. This is, this is actual. This is true. Jesus is human, and he is really, truly enduring this suffering. Not a show. But what, what is Jesus so torn up about? He tells us in his prayer, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's what he wants. Possible. The, this cup, whatever this cup is, is the issue. This is why he's so distraught. Well, this cup is the cup of, of God's wrath. You see in, in, in Isaiah, if you read Isaiah, there's a number of occasions where to drink the cup from the hand of the Lord is to drink the cup of his wrath. What is described as a cup in Isaiah, Matthew picks up on, Jesus picks up on in Matthew chapter 20. James and John are, are sort of a jockeying for position. You remember that scene in Matthew 20? And, and their, their mom comes to Jesus and says, Look, my son sit next to you. And Jesus asks them, can you drink the cup 
This is that cup. Can you drink the cup that I am to drink? And they say, yes, Lord. They're not, they don't know. This is the cup that he's talking about. And the same cup comes in again in the Lord's Supper. It's the cup of the new covenant symbolizing Jesus' blood poured out. So now, here we are. We're seeing this cup again. He's, Jesus is closer to drinking this cup, and we understand now, oh, he's talking about the cross. And at the cross, Jesus, Jesus isn't just going to die, all right? There's one thing that I want us to see. When you, when you watch like movies like The Passion of the Christ and, and the that the pain of the cross is sort of emphasized for us. We're supposed to feel that the pain of the cross as we watch the movie or we, or we see different scenes like that. But, but thousands and thousands of men, you need to understand this, thousands and thousands of men before Jesus have died on crosses. And there are worse ways of dying as well that others have faced. Men on battlefields thousands of years before Jesus, have faced certain death more boldly and nobly than what we see here. But no one has ever faced the death that Jesus is about to face. Jesus' death, what he is looking to in the coming 12 hours, is not just death at the hands of soldiers, it's not just a battlefield death. Jesus' death, it can't even be described as a martyrdom. Jesus' death is the death that destroys death. Jesus is moments away from that. He's moments away from giving his life as a ransom. He's, he's about to go to the cross to save his people from their sins. At the cross, this I think best grabs it for us. At the cross... Jesus will become a curse. No one else's death is that way. At the cross, Jesus will become a curse for us. At the cross, Jesus will be taking on himself wrath of God towards our sin. So here in Gethsemane, as we look at Jesus falling on his face, terrified, sorrowful, he's not just afraid of death. He's afraid of the curse of God's wrath. That's what he means when he says, take this cup from me. When Jesus knows, we've seen this, right? We, he knows that this is the Father's will. He's been telling us this is the Father's will. He knows that it has been written ahead of time that he would go through with this. He knows that this is his destiny. It is his, his mission. It's his calling. It's his duty. We will sing in, in, in a couple weeks. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. We can't sing that if Jesus does not take on the curse. He does not become the curse for us. And that's what he's grieving. And here we are, the curse is coming quickly. It is pressing him, crushing him like an olive, and, and what's inside of Jesus comes out. Hebrews, if you look at Hebrews chapter 5, we'll look at that in a little bit. It says that he's praying here with loud cries and tears. Luke, when he tells us this, says that Jesus is sweating blood. Even before his, his body 
feels the tip of the first nail. Jesus is already stricken, smitten, and afflicted as we sang. Jesus is suffering. What this tells us about Jesus is that he's human. He is experiencing human emotions the way that humans experience emotions. Humans experience emotions because of our, our circumstances. right? We respond, or you could say we, we react to situations, and we react to them emotionally. And, and our reactions will sometimes be happiness, sometimes sadness, or anger, or joy, or disgust, or, or excitement, sometimes indifference. But all of those are ways that we react to our circumstances. And we react because we are, as humans, moving through time, experiencing things moment to moment. And I say that because was God in his eternity is not like that. God is wholly different than us. The technical term is that God is impassable. God does not suffer. God is not acted upon by anything external to him. That, that would cause him to change. God is never surprised. He's never taken aback. God is God. He's all-knowing, right? He can't be surprised. He can't be caught off guard. He can't be found unprepared for something, anything. Nor do God's attitudes change, nor do his emotions change based on new knowledge, because there is no new knowledge. There's no change in God ever. Doesn't say that's not to say that God is ice cold, that he's emotionless. The best way that we understand God and emotion is probably in Exodus 34. Let me read for you Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. This is God revealing who he is, okay? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, that's that's God's covenant name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What do you see there? You see, God is merciful. He is gracious. He is patient. He is loving. He is faithful. He is forgiving and just and wrathful. All at the same time. All of those are God, are are characteristics of who God perfectly is. God does not change. And the divinity of of Jesus, the Christ, never changes either. But, but, But the man, Christ Jesus, does undergo change. He does experience time. He does experience emotion. In just the last few chapters, we've seen this. We've watched him change from from the zealous prophet in the temple flipping over tables and debating these world-renowned religious leaders, pronouncing woes on the most important people in Judaism, and training his disciples, preparing them for what's ahead of them. And he has shown us with this I don't know how to describe it. Like I said earlier, a stoicism. He's, he's shown us God's sovereignty over his pending death. And the way that he talked about that was so authoritative. 
Remember back at the beginning of chapter 26. The way that he begins to talk about these things with his disciples is, is very matter of fact. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He has been intent. His focus has been on the disciples preparing them for what's to come. And then, and then here he is in Gethsemane. He can almost smell the wood of the, of the beam before it even touches his shoulders. And the weight is too much to bear. And his, that toughness, that fortitude that we'd seen in him just gives way and he collapses on his face. Jesus is truly suffering because he's truly human. But I want you to see this, that in his suffering, in Jesus' suffering, in his being overcome with grief, he doesn't sin. He remains righteous in his grief. What that tells us is that sadness is sometimes the right response to a situation. Right? So, so if Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient to the Father, look at him, he's, he's on his face, he's totally broken. If Jesus can respond in this way to suffering, that tells us that it's not wrong to be brokenhearted. Some of you need to hear that. It's not wrong to be brokenhearted when your spouse dies. It's not wrong to be brokenhearted when your child is in rebellion against the Lord. It's not wrong to be brokenhearted when you lose a job or you get terrible news, whatever it is. It's not wrong to grieve when you're betrayed by a friend. You're not in sin just because you're sorrowful. I think sometimes, I know, sometimes, we wrongly communicate that to be a Christian means to be Happy, happy, happy all the time. I, I remember that this song in Awana hated this song. I'm, I'm in right, out right, upright, down right, happy all the time. Happy. Do you know that song? <laughs> if you don't, God bless you. Christianity is, is exciting and it's fun, and, and Jesus made my life all better, and I'm always so happy. Yet, where is there room in that brand of of happy, happy, joy, joy, grin and stimpy Christianity for what Jesus is experiencing here. When Christianity is all about fun and exciting and happy all the time, what happens to Christians when they're experiencing these emotions? It becomes embarrassing. It's shameful to have an emotion that all of the Gospels say that Jesus felt. But wasn't Jesus the one who taught us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Brothers and sisters, it is not wrong. It is not wrong to feel the emotions that King Jesus felt in Gethsemane. The kingdom is Jesus's. The comfort is Jesus's. The earth is Jesus's. It isn't wrong to be deeply sad and it isn't wrong to be afraid. And yet, 
knew this was coming. And yet there is a right and a wrong way to respond to this type of suffering, okay? I want you to look at at the, the, the three right things that Jesus does here. We know they're right because Jesus did them. If we're gonna follow example on on how to suffer well, let's look to Jesus. First thing that Jesus did was what? He told his closest friends what he was going, going through. Secondly, he asked them to be with him, to keep watch with him. And third, he prayed. All right, you see that? I'm gonna repeat that one more time. Let's go through these. He told his closest friends what he was going through. Jesus did not broadcast his suffering to everyone in the world. He wasn't here trying to make people feel sorry for him. Sometimes we sinfully do that. There's suffering and then there's trying to to make others suffer. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He wasn't trying to make people feel sorry for him. He wasn't playing the victim. He wasn't trying to get attention. He took his closest friends and told them, guys, what I'm enduring is agonizing. I need your help. There's a sincerity there, isn't there? Secondly, what he, he asked them to be with him to keep watch with him. This is important. That word keep watch is the same word that Jesus has been using to, to teach the disciples how to wait on his return. Be watchful, be aware, be prayerful. They were to keep watch, be on guard, stay awake. They were to realize that He's teaching his disciples here, realize the seriousness of the situation and respond accordingly. And what's serious about what Jesus is going through is that in this intense suffering, Jesus, like any of us, is tempted to sin in response. Jesus was being tempted here. He was tempted not to go through with his mission. You see that in his prayers. Father, if there is any other way, please take this cup away. Over and over again, Jesus' desire, his will is to not endure God's wrath. And yet he has a competing desire, doesn't he? He says, but not my will, but yours be done. He has a desire to obey the will of God, and he has a desire to not undergo the wrath of God. This, this back and forth between Jesus' desires, to, his desire to avoid suffering and his desire to obey the will of God, which he really does desire to do, this is a very clear illustration of what temptation is. This is what temptation is. Jesus is suffering the temptation to disobey the Father's will. That's why he tells his friends about what's going on. He knows he is at his weakest here. He knows that, that the temptation will be hard to bear. That's why he asked them to be with him, to keep watch with him. And if you begin to think, oh, the disciples don't know how to do this, they're not capable of this, they are, all right? The disciples know how to be on guard. We have seen them be on guard before. We've seen them keep watch, even in the middle of the night when they're very sleepy. Way back in Matthew chapter 8, there was a storm. And all of them are on the boat. The waves are crashing over. The wind is, is 
blowing hard, that their, their, their boat is, feels like it's going to be broken in two, the sea is nearly destroying them, and all of them are wide awake, keeping watch. They're working to keep from drowning. They realize at that moment the seriousness of the danger that they were in, right? And they respond accordingly. Interestingly, in that situation, who was sleeping? Jesus. Jesus then is sleeping soundly. He knew full well that his father was not going to let him drown in the Sea of Galilee. He knew at that time that his death would be on the cross, that this would not be the end. And he slept in that comfort. But here we are, hours from that cross, and he knows, Jesus knows, this is the true storm. This is, this is the true danger. This is the time for all of us to be awake, seeking God above all else. This is the time to, to be keeping watch, to avoid the temptation to disobey God. And now the disciples are totally blind to the danger. Jesus did what any of us should do when you're enduring temptation. Tell your closest Christian friends. But they weren't much help, were they? I don't want to be rosy about this. The Bible, friends, the Bible is not a self-help book. Okay, this is real life. Peter, James, and John failed Jesus here. They did not keep watch with him. They did not pray. They didn't even guard themselves from temptation. They let alone help Jesus in his moment of need. They couldn't stay awake for one hour. One hour, by the way, is the amount of time we'll be praying on Wednesday night. Just a plug. Come pray with us and stay awake. But despite that, this three-time failure of the disciples, despite their blindness to what's going on, Jesus prays. The failure of the disciples to keep watch is no excuse to keep Jesus from prayer. All right, Jesus is, is going to be held accountable for his own actions. And so he prays and he prays and he prays and he prays. Let's look at his prayers. The fact that Jesus prays is one thing, all right? He prays in response to temptation that is good and holy and right. He prays in response to suffering that, is, that should be our response to suffering. He prays in submission to the Lord. Prayer in itself is the right response to all of these situations. But, but I want to look particularly at the content of Jesus' prayers. So if you're, if you're taking notes, we're in that second section. It will not be as long as the first. There, there, there are two prayers that Matthew lists for us. First one is in verse 39. Jesus says, My Father, if, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then look at verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then Matthew says that a third time he prayed the same thing. So in all, Jesus prays the same thing three times, and he prays, did you notice this? He prays in the same way that he taught us to pray. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, when he was teaching the disciples and us how to pray, he taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. And how is Jesus praying here? My Father. He also taught us 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here he's praying in order that he would not fall into temptation. And he instructs the disciples, pray that you would not enter into temptation. Three times, he prays for the Father's will to be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We, we see that in, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, and he, three times he prays that prayer. And he prays persistently, doesn't he? Ask, and it will be given, he told us back in Matthew chapter 5. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus is asking, he's seeking, he's knocking, he's asking, he's seeking, he's knocking, he's persistent in his prayer. And he's doing that, he's persistent in this petition to the Lord because he knows that the Father loves him. He knows that the Father wants what's best for him. The content of Jesus' prayers reveal to us that, that in his relationship with the Father, he has the privilege to ask these things of the Father. And friends, you should, should remember this. You have that privilege. You have that privilege in Christ. You're in Christ. The Father is your Father. That's why you can pray to the Father. Jesus reveals to us here that he, that he fears the Lord. He reveals that he has a desire to obey the Lord. And he has a hope that God will answer his prayer. All three of those things we see here, don't we? What Jesus wants is to be able to be both obedient to God and to avoid the cross. That's why he's saying, if it's possible, take this cup. If there's any other way for you to accomplish this salvation, and you are the one, Lord, who will accomplish this, let it be another way. That's Jesus three times. But I want you guys to see something. But if you thought of the if you thought of the fact, if you noticed like the Lord God does not answer Jesus' request. Here is the most sincere, hands down the most sincere, authentic, heartfelt prayer in all of scripture. It is prayed by the most perfect man that ever walked the earth. It is a prayer of faith. This is a prayer cried out three times by a man with more faith than any of us will ever have. It's a prayer from a man who was without sin. A prayer from a man totally full of the Holy Spirit, the man who very soon will be king of all creation. And God did not answer his request. God did not give Jesus what he desired. He did not take away the cup. Friend, if you have been praying for something over and over again, and I know many of you have, many of you are praying for good things. You're praying for family members who are lost. You're praying for people that you love who are destroying themselves. You're praying that, that, that you would be Delivered from some difficult situation. I'm not about to tell you to give up on those prayers. Keep praying. Be persistent. Keep praying. But listen, if God has not answered your request, 
do not think it is because you don't have enough faith. Do not think it is because of some sin or it is because that you're not holy enough or you did not tithe enough. Jesus asked God to take away this cup from him, the cup of God's wrath, and God did not do it. And it was not because Jesus wasn't good enough. And it was not because he didn't believe hard enough. The reason that God did not give Jesus what he asked for is because it wasn't God's will. It was not the will of God to take away the cup of wrath. And he tells us what his will is. We sang it, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, as he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him, the servant Jesus, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But the will of the Lord to prosper in the servant's hand is to be crushed. Why didn't the Lord answer Jesus' request? Because his good and perfect and holy will was to bring salvation to you and me through Christ. And what we see in this text is that Jesus knew that. Jesus knew it was God's will for him to go to the cross. Jesus ultimately trusted in the Lord more than he trusted in his own human instinct to avoid suffering. And Jesus' faith is what got him through this. Let's look at his faith lastly. Even when Jesus knows that what the Father has in store for him is unimaginable suffering, even when he's already experiencing that suffering, Jesus trusts the Father. Not my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. Three times. Friends, that is faith. This is the very picture of Spirit-empowered, Holy Spirit-empowered, trusting in God. It is believing, faith is believing that even when we are afraid, even when we are sorrowful, even when we are suffering or enduring severe trial that we don't want to endure, faith is knowing this, God's will is greater. What God has for us is better than what we want. And we see that in Jesus. Not my will, but yours. Gethsemane, as, as we're looking at, as we shape the development of, of Jesus, his preparation for 
Christhood, for kingship. Gethsemane was Jesus' final preparation for the cross. His final bout with temptation. Once Jesus completes this trial of faith, he will be proven to will be proven ready to accomplish his mission. That's how the Bible teaches us about this passage. I told you we'd look at Hebrews 5. This is the last thing we're going to look at this morning. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9, is actually a commentary on what's happening here. So out of all the commentaries I looked at this week, this is the Holy Spirit-inspired one. Hebrews 5, 7 through 8. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, this is when Jesus walked the earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The apostle is telling us very clearly about Gethsemane right here. That's what we're seeing. Jesus is offering up prayers and supplications through his grief. He's praying that God would save him from what he's about to endure. And look at what the apostle says. And he was heard. See that? We have that on the slide. And he was heard. You, you, you know how I said that, that, that God did not answer Jesus' request? The apostle says God heard him. It wasn't that, that God was ignoring him. He heard him because of his reverence. And that word reverence there could be translated fear. It's a, it's a holy fear, a holy submission to the Lord. Jesus was showing here his his fear of the Lord, his trust in the Lord, his belief that God's will is greater than his own. And that's why God hears him. But look at God's response in verse 8. Verse 8 tells us what's happening. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The Lord heard Jesus. He wasn't ignoring Jesus. But the Lord here was refining Jesus. He was perfecting him. He was preparing him For the cross. Jesus is already all the way up to this point. He's proved himself obedient. But now is the true trial. Now he must prove himself obedient to the point of death. And as Jesus prays, and his requests are not answered, he's learning to trust the Lord here. Faith is is knowing it is, it is trusting that regardless of your circumstances, the Lord is teaching you to trust him more. To patiently obey him. Even in the midst of trials, the Lord is teaching you to follow Christ in faith. We, when we see Jesus' example here, the example that ultimately will save us, we're to follow this. Well, at the end of this, of this session, of this prayer session, this display of, of, of Jesus' true humanity, his, his prayer life, this picture of his faith, Jesus gets up and he's strengthened. He's ready to endure his trial. Look at verse 46. He gets up, he goes back to his disciples, says, let's face this. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Jesus did not stay on his face. When Judas came, 
He was not lying on the ground and picked him up and drug him away. He faced his adversary. After seeking the Lord's help, his resolve was restored. He made it through that tempting time. His faith was strengthened. He sits his face to the cross. And his followers follow him. How did he do that? Was it, oh, because he's God? No, it was the Spirit in the man Christ Jesus that enabled to do that. By the Spirit's power, Jesus went to the cross. By the Spirit's power, Jesus obeyed the Father. By the Spirit's power, Jesus endured temptation. He is, after all, the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the one who has come forth from the stump of Jesse, the branch from the roots that bears fruit. The Spirit of the Lord is resting upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. We see that ultimately when he was tempted to disobey God, he delighted his greater desire was to obey the Lord because the Spirit was in him and on him. The same Holy Spirit that has led Jesus through his fear, through his temptation, to pray to God, the same Holy Spirit that because of Christ's sacrifice, he has given you. Because Christ completed his Spirit-empowered mission, he has now sent his Spirit to you so that you could endure temptation, so that you could pray in time of need, so that your faith would increase. Amen. Let's pray.